Please be seated. Really quite pleased to introduce tonight's lecturer, Professor Carol Berger. Professor Berger studied at Warsaw University before earning his doctorate at Yale. For more than 30 years, he's taught at Stanford in the Department of Music and more recently in the Department of German Studies. He's written widely on music aesthetics, on polyphony, on Austrian and German music. His publications and his scholarly distinctions are really too numerous to name. A colleague of ours praised his book, Bach's Cycle, Mozart's Arrow, calling it a model of music as a liberal art, including detailed analysis, imaginative interpretation, and philosophical engagement with great musical works. The book discusses nearly every musical work given serious study on this campus, the Well-Tempered Clavier, the Matthew Passion, Don Giovanni, the Magic Flute, and Beethoven Sonatas. Tonight's lecture is entitled Nietzsche Contra Wagner, Wagner Contra Nietzsche. Please join me in welcoming Professor Carol Berger. Thank you very much for this kind introduction, uh, and thank you very much for the invitation. I uh, have heard uh, about this college uh, very, very long time ago. Most of you were, weren't born yet, and uh, I immediately thought, uh, a pity I didn't know about it earlier, this is the place I should have uh, been educated. Uh, uh, well, since I, it's too late for that now, at least I can be here and, and talk with you. Uh, so it, that, that's enormous pleasure and, and privilege. I uh, imagine that you understand how unique the encounter between Richard Wagner and Friedrich Nietzsche is. Uh, I can really think of no other occasion in... Uh, European intellectual cultural history where a thinker of truly first rank and an artist of truly first rank had such a prolonged, intense, deep, uh, spiritual, intellectual, and personal relationship. Uh, this is really a unique case, and this is, I think, one of the reasons why it is worth uh, uh, paying attention to it. As you also probably know, uh, this was not meant to last. About 10 years, more or less, since their first meeting, the two were no longer on speaking terms. And in the following 10 years of Nietzsche's sanity, uh, he had 10 more years before he uh, uh, well, b before he stopped being Nietzsche, uh, he was thinking about this encounter practically every day. We know because he left uh, copious Nachlass and we, we have his day-to-day uh, -day notes and there is hardly a day when he doesn't make a note about Wagner. Uh, this is a true, uh, truly uh, profound subject for him. Uh, in the last few months of his life, at the, toward the end of 1888, he, he prepares for publication two books in which he summarizes, puts together his thoughts 
uh, about this artistic phenomenon that Wagner was. And uh, what I would like to do today is essentially to uh, try to make sense of these, of, of especially one of these, of these books and of Nietzsche's thought, uh, thoughts about Wagner. But I also want to do something else, something that is less usual, because this first part of, uh, of, of my task has been accomplished many times before. Not perhaps as well as, as I hope I, I can accomplish it, but in any case. Uh, uh, but I also would like to do something uh, of a, of a um, thought experiment and imagine what it was that Wagner would have answered if he wanted to answer Nietzsche, what, what he would have said if he actually wanted to defend himself. Uh, he never did. Uh, so what he did, of course, he left his works. And I would like to think about how these works uh, would respond to Nietzsche's criticism. So this is my subject today. In Nietzsche's objections contra Wagner, it is good to distinguish two fundamental targets, closely intertwined to be sure, but nevertheless uh, separable. First, there are the institutions the composer created to promote and perpetuate his art. The whole phenomenon of Bayreuth, the festival, the periodical, as well as the Wagnerites, the patrons and associated propagandists and hangers-on. And second, there is the art itself. For Bayreuth, Nietzsche had nothing but contempt. At the time of his friendship with the composer, in the years leading up to the first festival in 1876, he had hoped that Bayreuth would become if not a new Athens, at least a new Weimar, a cultural alternative to the prosaic and Philistine new German empire he has distrusted from day one. The reality, as opposed to the ideal of Bayreuth, represented for him everything he hated most about the Reich, the narrow-minded, Philistine, self-satisfied nationalism and anti-Semitism. Nietzsche's most fundamental objection to Wagner, the man, was that he allowed himself to be enslaved by the institution he had called into being, that he became a Wagnerian, a nationalist icon. He was right about Wagner of the time of the first festival, but overlooked the fact that his hero's flirtation with the new empire was relatively short-lived. No sooner was the festival over, the composer's honeymoon with the empire was over too. Wagner's last years were marked rather by growing alienation from the Reich, and the second festival of 1882 might even be seen as consecrating Bayreuth as a cultural community preparing humanity's future regeneration against the disappointing background of the contemporary state of the empire and its politics. And yet, it is a testimony to Nietzsche's sensitivity and cultural acumen that he got Bayreuth fundamentally right even more, uh, more so even that he could have known in 1888 when he first publicly summarized his objections in the case of Wagner. 
The late Wagner stopped being Reichsdeutsch, but he did not st stop being an anti-Semite. The Bayreuth Circle inherited from Wagner not only the music dramas, but also the writings. Its members could rightly claim that they did not invent the anti-Semitism, they got it from the founder himself. All they did was to combine it with nationalism. As Udo Bernbach has shown, the Bayreuth Circle consistently inflected the reception of Wagner's oeuvre in the conservative, nationalist, and eventually radically right-wing direction. With Chamberlain moving in as Cosima's Kurt philosopher in 1909 and warmly welcoming Hitler as early as 1923, with Winifred and her son's close ties to the dictator through the Nazi period, the racist nationalism that was a component of the Bayreuth ideology from early on got amplified in ways that fully justified Nietzsche's prophetic intuitions and would have probably exceeded his worst expectations. It did not have to turn out this way, Nietzsche thought, since Wagner's art was in fact diametrically opposed to what the Bayreuth made of it. Far from being German and nationalist, the philosopher claimed, Wagner's art was cosmopolitan, Parisian, perhaps even Jewish, decadent. Now, Jewish, Parisian, cosmopolitan, in the vocabulary of the day, these were near synonyms, and they were all calculated to annoy the nationalists and to suggest that Wagner's art was a pan-European and not a local tribal phenomenon. But it was decadence that lied at the center of the diagnosis given in the case of Wagner. And in Nietzsche's vocabulary, decadence was at once a term of praise and an objection. It was a term of praise precisely because it lifted Wagner's art from the narrow confines of atavistic tribalism, characterized it as, an, as a European and modern, if not the art of the future, then certainly the art of the present, not the past. Nietzsche's Wagner is not a party comrade of Adolf Stocker, Karl Luger, or uh, Edouard Drummond, but a confrère of Delacroix and Baudelaire. Here, too, Nietzsche was right, largely right. To be sure, the Meisterzinger is profoundly marked by nationalism, and it is possible, though by no means obligatory, to find anti-Semitic caricatures there and in the ring. All the same, to reduce the significance of Wagner's work to nationalism and anti-Semitism, as both his most blinkered admirers and detractors have been inclined to do, is to miss most of what really matters about this oeuvre some of its most problematic aspects, such as the revolutionary enthusiasm of the ring or the ecstatic nihilism of Tristan, emphatically included. And the positive side of Nietzsche's claim rings plausible too, at least to the extent that Baudelaire's 1861 essay on Tannhäuser in Paris was indeed a key landmark in the international reception of Wagner's oeuvre, and that the French artistic avant-garde of the late 19th and early 20th century were among the composer's most ardent admirers. In any case, 
There can be no doubt that in the decades preceding the First World War, Wagner was an artistic event of pan-European resonance. But at a more fundamental level, decadence is an objection, the objection. The term names at once an attitude to existence and an artistic style in which this attitude is embodied. And it is the style that I would like to consider first. What is the sign of every literary decadence, Nietzsche asks in the case of Wagner? And he answers, I quote, that life no longer dwells in the whole. The word becomes sovereign and leaps out of the sentence. The sentence reaches out and obscures the meaning of the page. The page gains life at the expense of the whole. The whole is no longer a whole. Unquote. It has long been known that Nietzsche's unacknowledged source here is an observation made by French po uh, writer Paul Bourget in his 1883 essay on Baudelaire. From the start, Bourget's thought struck Nietzsche as being relevant to Wagner's style. We know this from the Nachlass again. How relevant? Nietzsche explained in the same section of the case of Wagner. The composer was the great master of brief, pregnant, plastic, and expressive gestures, short things of 15 to 15 measures that made him, quote, our greatest miniaturist in music, unquote. But he was incapable of subordinating such gestures to an overarching totality, incapable of creating large organic forms. The first part of this diagnosis is correct. The second could not be more wrong, but has been tremendously influential. From Nietzsche's day to our own, this has been perhaps the most commonly repeated criticism of Wagner the composer. Uh, that the criticism would be formulated and that it would stick seems in, respect, in retrospect inevitable. On the one hand, Wagner claimed to have inherited the mantle of Beethoven, the preeminent master of music in the grandest style, of large organic forms in music. On the other, he did not cultivate the instrumental genres such as the sonata, string quartet, and symphony, the quintessential Beethovenian genres, in which the mastery of such forms was commonly demonstrated and for which our analytical tools and vocabularies designed for the purpose of such demonstrations have been developed. These tools and vocabularies proved inadequate when confronted with the radical novelty and originality of the large-scale Wagnerian forms, especially since these forms were being reinvented with each work, did not congeal into any single standard pattern. This, after all, more than anything else, made Wagner into the essential figure inaugurating musical modernism. In these circumstances, the complaint that, that the Wagnerian music drama did not live up to the principles of the Beethovenian symphony was to be expected. Indeed, it runs as not-so-secret pedal points through much of Adorno's essay on Wagner, for instance. 
Much of my current work on delayed music dramas is designed to develop an alternative analytical approach and show how seriously misguided Nietzsche's and his successors claim of Wagner's incapacity of giving organic form is. Wagnerian analysis, I am arguing, needs to be guided neither by the concepts developed to understand instrumental music, nor by the concepts developed by Wagner himself before he started composing his music dramas. It can be guided instead by the concepts derived from the operatic tradition. These would authorize an analytical procedure whereby one would first recognize what the specifically Wagnerian recitative dialogue based on the open system of composition constitutes uh, excuse me, recognize that the specifically Wagnerian recitative dialogue based on the open system of composition constitutes the discursive norm of the music dramas and proceed to identify all those sections that depart from this norm by employing some features of the closed system of composition. And second, see whether these individual abnormal sections suspended in the sea of discursive normality are or are not related to one another in such a way as to form families and create larger patterns. An analysis of this sort reveals, for instance, that the large-scale formal backbone of Tristan und Isolde is provided by the idea that the central love duet will be interrupted and then completed only at the end of the opera in Isolde's transfiguration that what makes the Meistersinger von Nuremberg, uh, what gives the Meistersinger von Nuremberg its overall organization is the idea that each act will end with a large diegetic aria, with an ensemble finale, and that the uh, whole will be framed by the recapitulation of the complete prelude in the last scene of the opera. That the form of Parsifal, is transparently governed by the idea of a redemptive ritual which fails at the end of Act I and hence has to be repeated, this time successfully, at the end of the opera. The notion that Wagner thought exclusively in terms of miniature expressive gestures or of the so-called poetic musical periods is simply unsustainable. As both his practice and his letters make clear, even his pre-compositional dramaturgy was directed toward a single situation giving unity to each act. Similarly, his balancing of sections based on the open and closed systems of composition was designed to provide formal unity to each act and to each opera as a whole. Wagner's ability to invent turns of phrase that would capture the expressive essence of the dramatic moment of the character's present situation, gesture, thought, and state of mind was indeed prodigious, and Nietzsche was right to praise it. But if my analyses are at all persuasive, uh, and for now you will have to take my word for it, the composer was equally the great master of large form, capable of controlling, shaping, and giving direction to spans of time of unprecedented and until today unsurpassed lengths. In this respect, 
Nietzsche's diagnosis is interesting in that it reveals something about the way Wagner was heard by him and probably by many others after him, but not because it reveals something about Wagner's compositional deficiencies. The diagnosis was closely related to another central aspect of Nietzsche's critique. From the very start of their acquaintance, Nietzsche was struck by Wagner's histrionic abilities. The idea that Wagner's talent was primarily that of an actor begins to appear regularly in Nietzsche's private notes surprisingly early, from 1874 on, and it remains a leitmotif to the end. <clears throat> Indeed, one is astonished uh, to find that practically every component of Nietzsche's case against Wagner that the philosopher made public in 1888 can be found in the private notations of his Nachlass dating back to 1874-76. If Nietzsche found the first Bayreuth festival disappointing, his private notes show that he was well prepared for this disappointment. The case of Wagner famously culminates in this vehement denunciation. Quote, but who could still doubt what I want? That the theater should not lord it over the arts. That actors should not seduce those who are authentic. That music should not become the art of lying. Unquote. On the face of it, this anti-theatrical, anti-acting outburst might seem puzzling, is puzzling. Are acting, theater, performing, necessary an art of lying? Is this so because the truth is lodged in uh, the work, the drama, and it is traduced in performance? Such thoughts would be perhaps worthy of Aristotle, who in the sixth chapter of his Poetics argued that of the six components that make a tragedy, the ones that truly mattered were the plot, the moral characters of the agents, and the agents' intentions which revealed these characters. That the agents' words and melodies mattered less, and the performing of the drama least of all. But are such thoughts worthy of Nietzsche? A hierarchy of the sort that Aristotle is promoting is rooted in the underlying hierarchy of the essence and appearance. The plot, characters, and their intentions are of the essence. The actual words and melodies that allow these plots, characters, and intentions to appear are secondary, and what the actors do with these words and melodies is tertiary, an appearance to the second degree. But this is precisely the kind of distinction late Nietzsche has taught us to leave behind. Of all people, Nietzsche had least right to defend the truth of the work against the lie of performance. In this respect, it is as if Wagner and Nietzsche had changed the roles they should have played. Wagner's opera and drama relies to a remarkable extent on categories developed by Aristotle in his poetics. Had Wagner asserted the primacy of the enduring and unchanging work in relation to the ephemeral and variable performance, we would find it only natural. But instead, Wagner's theories and practices suggest the opposite. On July 20, 1850, that is the very time of his most intense theorizing, he wrote in a letter to Franz Liszt, quote, 
Only the performer is the real, true artist. All that we create as poets and composers expresses a wish, but not an ability." Unquote. His subsequent activities showed that this was not the case of false modesty, but indeed the expression of his genuine conviction. His tireless efforts to train singers and orchestras in the art of the proper rendition of his works, the creation of the festival itself, all show that he was not the kind of, the, of artist for whom it was enough to produce works. The real, true work of art existed only as embodied in actual performance. Surprisingly, in this respect, Wagner was much more radically modern than Nietzsche, much more of a precursor to the currently fashionable preoccupation with embodiment. But perhaps we are on the wrong track here. Perhaps what Nietzsche meant when he railed against the lie of the theater and acting was not theater, acting, or performance in general, but how Wagner in particular treated these. Wagner, he claimed, begins with a vision, a hallucination of an actor's gesture or attitude, the more intense and extreme, the better. Only then does he invent a musical shape in which such a gesture finds its expression. The actor's vehement gesture and the expressive musical shape in which this gesture gets embodied are the aim in itself. They do not serve any larger goal, are not there to reveal the character or further the plot. Like details in the style of Bourges' decadence, they are emancipated from any larger whole. This is why they have to, to be considered inauthentic and mendacious. They do not express an integrated, authentic personality. Thus Nietzsche is implicitly turning against Wagner, the latter's famous accusation against Meyerbeer, as the creator of effects without causes. If I am right, in short, the anti-acting bias that runs through the whole length of Nietzsche's Wagner critique has to be seen as an aspect of his objection against the decadent style of the composer. Thus, it stands or falls, falls in this case, together with the claim of the composer's inability to create large forms. Behind the critique of Wagner the actor and the associated critique of Wagner the miniaturist incapable of large organic forms lies the, the philosopher's bias in favor of classic absolute music. This part of Nietzsche's objection to Wagner reads as if written by an adherent of Brahms, disappointed that music drama is not like symphony and incapable of noticing that the principles of the music dramatic form are different from, but no less compelling than, those of the symphonic form. But if Nietzsche stumbled over the centrally important question of large form, Otherwise, his characterization of Wagner's style is generally perceptive and correct. In the case of Wagner, Nietzsche constructs an opposition between the aesthetics of decadence or romanticism, the two terms are nearly synonymous for him, and the classical aesthetics, and of course places Wagner squarely in the romantic camp. 
The classical style is the style of firmly and contoured architectonic shapes. The romantic one dissolves such firmly contoured shapes into a web of developing motivic relationships. Wagner's is the art of soft gradual transitions rather than hard articulations, of imprecise rather than sharply defined boundaries, of veiling that extends even to the continuously mixed and remixed color of the orchestra. And Nietzsche's metaphors of dancing versus swimming capture the resulting sensations of motion accurately. Imprecise boundaries, moreover, suggest infinity. Wagner's art, Nietzsche correctly points out, is not satisfied with what is finite. It aims at what in 18th century terms would be called the sublime rather than the beautiful. And what in the terms of Nietzsche's precocious masterpiece, The Birth of Tragedy, was renamed the Dionysian rather than the Apollinean. It is immeasurable and monumental rather than cut to human scale. And it aims to make us uh, swim and drown in the infinite ocean uh, or the void of space, not dance amid the sharply delineated shapes of the terra firma. In this respect, too, it is a romantic rather than a classic art. And here, too, it is difficult to quarrel with Nietzsche's characterization of the style. But decadence is more than just an artistic style. It is an attitude to life embodied in the style. What, then, is decadence as a worldview? And what is wrong with it? Nietzsche has said it a number of times before, and he said it, says it once more in the epilogue to the case of Wagner. Quote, aesthetics is tied indissolubly to these biological presuppositions. There is an aesthetics of decadence and there is a classical aesthetics, unquote. And he immediately links the two to the contrast between a master morality and the morality of Christian value concepts. He has been exploring since at least the genealogy of morals. Quote, the Christian wants to be rid of himself. Noble morality, master morality, conversely, is rooted in a triumphant yes said to oneself. All of the beautiful, all of great art belongs here. The essence of both is gratitude, unquote. The aesthetics of the decadent or romantic sublime, like the Christian ethics, is hostile to life, increases exhaustion, spreads nausea with life. This is what condemns it in the eyes of the philosopher who of every examined phenomenon always asked if it supported the ascending or the declining life, growth or decadence, whether it increased or diminished one's power to create and approved or disapproved accordingly. But how compelling really is the association of the romantic style with decadence understood as exhaustion with life. The problem is that I, I can find no compelling arguments in Nietzsche's writings that would convince me that it is indeed the effect of the romantic style that it discourages us. In fact, it is difficult to find any arguments, compelling or not. In this matter, 
Nietzsche asserts instead of arguing. If there is an implied argument here, it seems to be based on the idea that the style that aims at the beautiful, the style of clearly delineated finite forms, clings to this phenomenal world, the only world there is. By contrast, the style aiming at the sublime, the style of formless limitlessness, gestures toward the infinite beyond, toward a transcendent world that Nietzsche thinks we do not need and that poisons our delight in the real world we have, since we are compelled to evaluate the real from the perspective of the transcendent and inevitably find the former wanting. But does this have to be discouraging? Could not the effect be revitalizing, sparing us to further efforts designed to bring the real closer to the ideal? Nietzsche's equation of the romantic style with a turning away from life seems to me far too simplistic and schematic. But if his attempt to base his objections to Wagner on stylistic criteria fails, perhaps this is because the true ground of his opposition lies elsewhere, not in the composer's style, but in the content of his message. Perhaps it was what Wagner had to say that was decadent, not how he said it. Bizet, Nietzsche tells us in the case of Wagner, aims to give pleasure. By contrast, Wagner wants to edify and ultimately redeem us. What seems to be decadent and life-denying is the very idea that we are in need of redemption. Those who embrace this world and life do not feel that they have to get redeemed. Amor fati, that one wants nothing to be different, versus redemption, because one wants everything to be different. Here Nietzsche is indeed on a much firmer ground. What is perhaps most admirable about Wagner is that he never stopped reinventing himself. While Throughout the latter part of his life, he held on to the self-image of the artist as a prophet. The specific content of the prophecy constantly evolved. The process of reinvention began with the Ring des Nibelungen. In spite of its prolonged gestation and belated premiere, the cycle's ideological and artistic premises belong to Wagner's politically most radical anarchist period of the late 1840s and early 1850s, when, inspired by Feuerbach, Proudhon, and Bakunin, the composer expected a successful pan-European revolution that would sweep away the old regime of traditional aristocratic political elites and new plutocratic financial ones and usher in a world in which humans would stop competing for political power and economic advantage and instead relate to one another by spontaneously arising bonds of solidarity and love. The project got outdated, however, long before it was completed. By the late 1854, Wagner's expectations of an impending successful re revolution faded away and the composer found an explanation for his disappointment in the pessimistic philosophy of Schopenhauer. Moreover, Tristan und Isolde, 
the first music drama with which he interrupted the composition of the ring in the late 1850s was dedicated to the celebration of a conception of love that profoundly undermined the very foundations of the Nibelung cycle. Erotic desire, a phenomenal manifestation of the noumenal will, ceaseless, pointless, and senseless, drives the protagonist of the new music drama inexorably to transcend the finite daily realm of customary social rights and obligations for an infinite metaphysical night of nothingness. Love, it turns out, is hardly a force that might underwrite any new society, let alone a society based on spontaneous solidarity. The metaphysical pessimism of Tristan exploded the social optimism of the ring and forced Wagner to rethink his political and ethical vision. The first fruit of this rethinking was the main project of the 1860s, the Meistersinger von Nuremberg. The drama was an attempt to see whether something like the social-political optimism of the ring might still be possible after the pessimistic revelations of Tristan. Wagner did arrive at an affirmative answer to this question, but the results were fascinatingly ambiguous. Much of the opera seems to propose a retreat from the revolutionary radicalism of the Ring toward a richer, moderate vision of a progressive conservative society that puts the incessantly and potentially destructive will to constructive uses attempts to balance traditions with innovations, moves forward, forward by revitalizing rather than abandoning its past. In the end, however, this vision is undermined by something no less radical than the ring, a prospect of a post-political national community, a revolutionary symbiosis of the leader artist with the people, over the heads of the silenced political and economic elites of the past. The time immediately preceding and following the establishment of Bismarck's new German Empire in 1871 was spent on the completion of the Ring and creation of the theater and festival at Bayreuth. But the Empire evidently did not live up to the hopes embodied in the Meistersinger, to say nothing of the ones embodied in the Ring, by the late 1870s, in his final music drama, Parsifal, Wagner turned his back on larger national politics and on the increasingly militaristic, aggressive, and triumphalist empire in search of a direction for a smaller cultural community, such as the one he hoped would emerge in Bayreuth, a community that would prepare a regeneration of humanity by cultivating the Pacific uh, Schopenhauerian Buddhist Christian virtues of renunciation and compassion. Resignation and agape are now offered as the only possible hopeful answers to the hopelessness of will and eros. From about the time of Wagner's death on, Nietzsche began to think of himself as the guardian of what the master stood for at the time of their friendship and what he, Nietzsche, believed the composer betrayed at Bayreuth and most particularly in his last work, the work with which he consecrate, consecrated the festival stage in 1882. From at least 1882 on, 
the philosopher understood his opposition to Wagner as first and foremost an opposition to the content of Parsifal. Indeed, he had no fundamental objections to the contents of the remaining music dramas. In the case of Wagner, Nietzsche tells the story of how the good, optimistic Wagner of the Ring, as originally it uh, was conceived, has been transformed under the impact of Schopenhauer into the bad, pessimistic one. This gets us closer to the core of his objections to Wagner. What remains when the scintillating but dubious rhetorical re rhetoric dictated by personal hurt and ressentiment is stripped away is the disappointment that the composer did not remain faithful in his late dramas to the revolutionary God's abolishing message of the ring that he embraced Schopenhauer instead. But this cannot yet be the whole story. After all, Wagner embraced Schopenhauer also in Tristan, and yet that opera remained for Nietzsche untouchable to the end. And not only Tristan, but the Meisterzinger too has never become subject to anathema. Only to Parsifal was his opposition implacable. Clearly, the decadent metaphysical pessimism of Schopenhauer was not enough to disqualify a Wagnerian drama in Nietzsche's eyes. Something else was needed in addition, and this something else came to the fore only in Parsifal. The philosopher's pessimism had to be combined with the ethical ingredient Schopenhauer inherited from the Christian tradition. Agape, love of neighbor, pity, compassion for the suffering creation, and not only for humans, but for all living nature. Thus, it is not only that from at least 1882 on, Nietzsche's principal objection to Wagner centered on the content of Parsifal, but also that it involved an interpretation of this content as essentially Christian. Recall what he told Malvida von Meisenburg uh, upon learning of the composer's death. Quote, Wagner has offended me in a mortal way. I will tell you this. I have experienced his slow going and creeping back to Christianity and to the church as personal offense, unquote. The offense was to abandon Siegfried, Siegfried for Parsifal. Parsifal was his, with its insane hatred of knowledge, spirit, and sensuality represented, quote, a self-negation, self-cancellation on the part of an artist who had hitherto aimed with all the power of his will at the reverse, at the highest spiritualization and sensualization of his art, unquote. Nietzsche began to distance himself from Christianity early, and his opposition got more and more strident with time. Once the son of a Lutheran pastor lost his faith, Greek paganism became an alluring alternative. Athens, not Jerusalem, gives direction to Nietzsche, the writer and thinker, from the beginning to the end. From the birth of tragedy to Nietzsche contra Wagner and other feverish books of his last year. But it is only in 1884 that he begins to articulate explicitly, at first only in letters, the idea that his historical role might be to overturn the traditional values and that he begins to see himself as a new Christ, or rather Antichrist, 
as someone who will split the history of mankind into two parts. Toward the end, in 1888, he will make this role explicit in the titles of his two books, The Antichrist and Ecta Homo. By 1888, this conception of his own world historical significance often comes close or even oversteps the bounds of sanity. I am more dynamite than man, he declares, and there can be no doubt that what the dynamite was supposed to explode was Christianity. Master morality versus slave morality, the noble and tolerant relativistic perspectival aesthetic code of the Homeric and Norse heroes versus the slavish and intolerant unconditional moral code of Hebrew prophets and Christian saints. This is the theme of Nietzsche's central books of his mid-1880s, Beyond Good and Evil, 1885-6, and On the Genealogy of Morals, 87. It dominates the thought of his two remaining years of precarious sanity and defines his conception of his own world historical role, his self-image as the Antichrist Dionysus. Quote, Have I been understood? Dionysus versus the crucified, unquote. Thus ends Ecce Homo, his testament. Be creative. Make your own values and aims. Shape your own self. This is the essence of Zarathustra's teaching. My task, as Nietzsche sees it, is to create an unprecedented, aesthetically satisfying, rich and coherent life story. In a world that can no longer believe either in God uh, and his revealed Decalogue or in immutable reason and its Kantian imperatives, the only plausible standards of value are aesthetic. Moreover, aesthetic standards are all we need. Ethical standards of evaluation are neither available nor necessary. Alas, Nietzsche did not want to recognize that it was possible to give style to one's character become who one was, organize one's chaotic impulses, shape one's life story into a coherent narrative, and still be a scoundrel or worse. Indeed, he's at his least attractive when he intimates that violence and cruelty might be aestheticized too. Nietzsche's Christianity is at bottom the morality of pity, and it is to be opposed as such, opposed above all because it detracts from the care of the self. The failures are to be shunned because they undermine our self-confidence, our trust in life. For Nietzsche, the care of the self takes precedence over the care of others. The morality of pity is the face Nietzsche finds in Parsifal, with its chaste and foolish hero, who instead of pushing old gods aside, like the equally foolish but distinctly unchaste Siegfried, comes to heal the wound and alleviate the suffering of his predecessor king. There are those who would claim that Parsifal cannot be regarded a Christian work. But Nietzsche is, not in, uh, is, un, is as uninterested in the literal truth of Christian myths as he is in arguing the finer points of theological doctrine or attacking established churches. He treats Christianity in the same way Wagner does. What he objects to are the ethical values articulated in uh, Parsifal. For him, 
They are the still living essence of Christianity, whatever the established churches or theologians might, might think. He's interested not in the dogma, but in the morality of Christianity. His understanding of religion is identical to Wagner's. He's just, he just evaluates it differently. But is his objection pers persuasive? Must we indeed choose between the love of neighbor and the care of the self? At his best, Nietzsche himself does not believe that we must. In the case of Wagner, he remarks that his two perspective, perspectives, that of the Homeric master and that of the Christian slave, are both necessary and equally immune to reasons and refutations. And indeed, so they are. In his weaker moments, Nietzsche forgot that the two perspectives apply in two distinct realms of activity, that one belongs to the duties we have toward others and the other to the duties we have toward ourselves. We need both, to care for our suffering neighbors and to care for our own selves. One might even decide that the self one wants to create will be, among others, charitable. Yes, the two cares may come into conflict, but this is true of most ultimate values we live by. Liberty and equality, freedom and security, justice and mercy, the pursuit of truth and the pursuit of happiness, they all cannot be harmonized. And in trying to balance them against one another, we are forced to make compromises. Nietzsche managed to illuminate Wagner's oeuvre in many invaluable ways, but the centerpiece of his case against the composer, his critique of the ethical values projected in Parsifal, fails to persuade. We need both Siegfried and Parsifal, both the late Wagner and the late Nietzsche, both Nietzsche contra Wagner and Wagner contra Nietzsche. This is one way in which the composer implicitly corrects the philosopher. There is another, related and even more fundamental one. In Richard Wagner in Bayreuth, Nietzsche remarked, quote, and will the Meisterzinger not speak of the, Germ of the German nature to all future ages? More, will it not constitute one of the ripest fruits of that nature? which always seeks reformation, not revolution, and though broadly content with itself, has not forgotten that noblest expression of discontent, the innovative deed, unquote. The philosopher may have ignored the implications of the opera's final scene, but otherwise he captures its significance to perfection. Whether this is specifically German or not, it is the wisdom of the Meisterzinger to understand that individual creativity and social traditions are insolubly linked, that a tradition gets sterile if not fertilized by innovation, while creativity quickly runs dry if it does not grow on the soil of tradition. It is this wisdom that implicitly challenges Nietzsche's radical project of self-creation ex nihilo. Nietzsche understood that when I shape my own self and become who I am, I do not create this self out of nothing. Rather, I fo form it out of the materials already there, my own contradictory impulses. But he was apt to conceive these materials as purely individual biological givens and, and to forget that they are also social historical givens, 
that the culture of my ancestors has contributed at least as much to the chaotic pool of my impulses as did their biological makeup. There would be precious little to harmonize if my only desires were biological. The materials from which a self is shaped are provided by the culture and social traditions in which the shaping takes place. This is the indispensable, obverse side of the call to authenticity and creativity. Nietzsche seems to have understood this point when he wrote about the Meisterzinger in 1876, but chose to ignore it in his maturity. He continued to adhere to the post-political utopia of the ring and to remember Siegfried, this prototype of the self-created overman, with gratitude, and he continued to be overwhelmed by the uncompromised, uh, uncompromising ecstatic nihilism of Tristan, but he was unwilling to give Wagner credit for his search for ways out of the impasse the latter work represented, the search for ways forward in a universe after God and beyond reason. Also here, he would benefit, we would benefit to imagine what Wagner might have said contra Nietzsche and not limit ourselves to what Nietzsche said against Wagner. On many important issues, not the least the danger of racist nationalism that was beginning to engulf Germany, Nietzsche was prophetically right. On other issues, Wagner offered more attractive alternatives. Think of Nietzsche's misogyny or of his readiness to flirt with violence. But specific preferences of this sort apart, it was Wagner, not Nietzsche, who in his last works was groping toward a vision richer and more fertile than that of pure authenticity and self-shaping, who glimpsed the emptiness of the idea that values must be created and proposed instead that if they are to be values, they need to be found and revitalized. It was in the bourgeois community of imperfect but genuine liberty and justice depicted in much of the Meisterzinger, an opera the late Nietzsche appreciated but somewhat underestimated, and in the moral community of reciprocal charity depicted in Parsifal, an opera he despised, that we can discern the promise of a self-correcting, intersubjective and intergenerational conversation of deliberative reason that might allow us to move forward past the aporia of solipsistic creativity conducted in the void after God and beyond reason. Thank you.